one way to understand what we're doing here and what the path of practice is or what the maturing of the mind is is to understand the development of the ten paramis paramis being the perfections completions or what is necessary to fulfill the spiritual life We've been talked about some during this retreat, and some of them have been talked about in great detail. Tonight, I don't want to talk about the theoretical aspects or the book commentaries about the paramis and how and why and what they are. But I thought rather, since it's near the end of the retreat, that I would just review a little bit of how the how I have experienced the development of the paramis in my own practice. I should first say probably that until a couple of days ago I couldn't have listed the ten paramis either. And never really have been very conscious of them as a vehicle for developing insight or understanding or developing a mature spiritual mind or whatever. Never really used them as a tool for conscious work. But once I looked up in the book, found out what they were, and then started looking over my past practice and different experiences in practice, then I could see that, yes, indeed, some of them have been worked on a little bit, others are a little more obscure. And rather than some practice to develop one or the other, I could see that the whole haphazard journey over these past some years has been rather an incremental increasing in development of these qualities of mind rather than some big push to develop one of them to the exclusion of the others. It's just kind of a gradual what comes next approach actually. One could, if the Buddha is here, it'd be nice to ask him why he chose these ten things and left out mindfulness and left out concentration and faith or confidence. But we should understand that these factors that he happened to leave out are really necessary and are also included in the development of the ten that he did decide to include. They're usually given in a specific order, but tonight, for my own purposes, I've rearranged the order a bit so that it kind of flows a little smoother from one incident to the next. And even then, it's not really going to be chronological 
in any sense. I'll be jumping all over the past 20 years, but it's more just for my own convenience and having a vehicle for telling stories. So the first parami is that of dana, or generosity, or liberality, or giving the generous heart. I left it first, the Buddha left it first, I left it first, because I never could understand why. And that was one of the questions I used to ask, or I have asked Sayadaw. Why is dana first? And why isn't dana included in the Eightfold Path? The three practices in the Eightfold Path are sila, samadhi, and panya. Practice of morality, concentration, and wisdom. It doesn't say anything about generosity. So I asked him, why is that? I really didn't need to ask him. When I began thinking about my own practice, it was pretty clear why. Dana is first and probably foremost among all of the Buddhist teachings and practices. After I quite accidentally stumbled upon a two-week retreat some years ago, not knowing anything about Buddhism or meditation or spirituality and not being interested in any of them, but somehow painfully getting through a two-week retreat, I didn't do anything with practice or mindfulness or didn't even think about it for a couple of years. And then that was just at the time that they bought, some some people bought this place uh, in 76. So then they sent out a flyer announcement saying that a group of meditators had gone together, had bought this old seminary here in Barrie and it was in really run-down shape, and they needed people to come to a work retreat for 10 days, I think it was, in the, in the summer. And they needed carpenters and masons and painters and general handymen and women and anybody that was interested to come give a hand to, keep, to open up this meditation center. So, as soon as I got the announcement, I was a contractor at the time up at Maine, building houses, so it was just my line of work. I said, oh, I think I'll go. And I made arrangements and came. And as soon as I drove in the driveway, it looked pretty much as it does these days. But I felt really already comfortable. And I went into the office and someone took me, I signed in. And someone took me up into the Catskills, one of the rooms on the back side of the Catskills, second floor of the Catskills. And I walked in the room and it was, there was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing then. And I just walked in and put down my bag and walked to the window and looked out back into the pine forest. And I saw one of the staff people just walking by. And I had the feeling then that this is where I belong. Without speaking to anybody and only having done retreat, one retreat, I just knew this is home, this is the place where I belong. And in reflecting back on it 
I think I had such an appreciation for the opportunity to practice before this place was bought that when there was the possibility of providing this place for other people to practice, I knew what I w- that I wanted to do what I could to make that possible. Not being wealthy, but having time, I wanted to make my service, my skills, and just be here to make that possible. And this was before I would say I had any, certainly before I had much morality, any concentration and no wisdom. But there was a sense of a real humility in appreciation just for the opportunity and wanting to give that opportunity to other people, wanting to somehow make it available and to do what I could to make it possible. In some ways, it might have been the first time in my life I was touched by something other than just personal get-by or personal survival, something that was greater than and beyond my own life. That was the first year of ten years of service here, where I spent time mostly on the staff and on the board of directors and just generally being available to do what had to be done here to keep the place open and running. And in the early years it was touch and go for a few years where it was a matter of if three more people show up for this retreat we can pay this month's mortgage and stay open. And if they don't, we close. And it was that type of spirit that we were being here on staff and participating. And it's a real sense of giving everything you've got for something that you really value. I didn't understand it then as being generous or developing paramis or dana or anything of the sort. But I got a better sense of it when I went to Asia, jumping ahead several years. When I went to Asia and I saw how the lay people in Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, the countries that I visited, were so supportive of monks, nuns, meditation centers, teachers of one sort or another. I could speak for an hour or more on just the really heart-touching incidences of my stay there, of people just being generous. There's one old Chinese man from Malaysia who happened to go to Burma to practice at the meditation center I was in for three months. And he was a fellow that had many children, one of whom was also a meditator. And she came to translate for him. He couldn't speak English. He could only speak Chinese. His daughter could speak English. She spoke English to the Burmese translator, who then spoke Burmese to Sayadaw and then translated it back to Chinese. Generous heart. Anyway, this old Chinese man was so... had so much faith, and he had such an understanding of 
practice. He was actually a good yogi, much better than his daughter. And every time he saw me, he would always give something, a little medicine or this or that, I think. And all he could say was, Dhanaparami, Dhanaparami. That was like his mantra, Dhanaparami, Dhanaparami. And he'd give something and bow. And when I went later went to Malaysia, he was there in the same town. And when he saw me, he would come, he'd give me a pen, he'd give me a bottle of aspirin, a piece of candy, a package of gum, Dhanaparami, Dhanaparami, Dhanaparami. And he really understood that that's what he was doing. He was developing his generosity. There was one monk in Burma, one of the meditation teachers where I was staying at the meditation center, who was the most amazing in this regard of all the monks I met. I used to go see him occasionally for reporting my interviews, and sometimes he would say, if you ever want to dye your robes, because your robes would bleach out and you'd have to dye them back to the right color, he'd say, come over to my place and I'll help you dye. I'll help you dye the robes. <laughs> and <laughs> he was very generous with his time. He's very busy. He's one of the, the guiding teachers. He's very busy, but every noon after lunch, he would just make available about an hour that anybody who wanted to come dye the robes could come and he'd help them dye the robes. Later, when I was doing less intensive practice, or kind of sneaking around not doing so intensive practice, he asked me if I would teach him English. And so I would go to see him every night for about an hour and a half after the Dhamma talk. And it never failed. Every time I went to see him, whether to dye my robes, to go just ask him a question, to go teach him English, Every time he offered me something, every time, candy, drinks, robes, slippers, umbrellas, something, he wouldn't let a time go by when he didn't offer something, or didn't at least ask if I wanted or needed anything. Very generous. Maybe the most poignant in some ways. The expression of dana is going on alms round as a monk. When I was in Burma the second time after two years of practice, Zen Sayadara allowed me to go on alms round in Rangoon. And from where we were staying at the meditation center, we would go for about an hour and a quarter and walk three miles along the road through this one suburb or section of Rangoon, which happened to be a really poor, I mean really poor, slum section of Rangoon. And the people, somehow it happened that I was the most regular of the monks that were going because people would change. They would come to meditation center for a couple of months and then they'd leave. Others would come, and there was a constant overlapping, but nobody stayed more than two months. I was staying there year after year, so it ended up that 
I got to be at the head of the line. And so I was leading this group of monks through this regular route that we would go. And every day in this three miles, there would be a regular group of about 50 people, maybe, that would offer rice. And on some days, there'd be a couple of hundred people. And they're so happy when monks come to receive food. And maybe particularly so when a foreign monk comes. Because they can't believe in the first place that anybody would want to come to Burma. And why anybody would want to be a monk and walk through the slums of Rangoon. They just can't understand it. But they're so happy to be able to give a spoonful of white rice to each person, to each of the monks in the line. And I can really see that giving or developing a generous heart really leads to happiness. We don't think so in this country so much. We think if I get, the more I get, the more I keep, the happier I'll be. But in fact, it's just the opposite. The more you give away, the happier you'll be. Dana, or generosity, the first parami. Second parami is satcha, or truthfulness. After some years of being here, maybe, I don't know, eight or so, seven or eight years, I'd never done a three-month course. I'd only done a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there. <clears throat> so I decided it was time to do a three-month course. So I came, did it, and decided I wanted to stay on. So I stayed on for another seven months and ended up doing ten months of uh, practice. The last three of which was the first was with Saito Upandita the first time he came here. And that was a grueling three months. It was just unbelievable, difficult. I sat right there and suffered every minute of three months. What's this got truthfulness? Mm. At the end of those ten months, or at the end of that three-month retreat with him, I knew I was finished. I wasn't going to be doing any more intensive practice until I was retired. I was, <laughs> I was finished. I, I couldn't. I just couldn't imagine doing any more practice like that. So I went back in to Western Massachusetts and started my business again. And every year prior to that, I used to come in January when the centers closed and do a retreat, a two-week retreat. And so I did again that following year and it was a horrible time again having the expectations that I was going to do what I had done during Upandita's retreat I was going to come here and practice like that some condition happened I don't remember what but I couldn't do any sitting I could only do a lying down meditation and I slapped most of it not very good yogi somewhere after about nine or ten days something came over me and I realized that what I really needed to do was practice more and that's all that I wanted to do and that I was going to do it and I wasn't going to let 
anything stand in my way. But it had happened that the time since my, over the four or five months since I finished the Upandita retreat until then, had been probably the happiest time in my life and probably the most successful along all parameters of measurement. Happy in my relationship, in my business, and where I was living, and with my family, extended family. And the, the understanding that I needed to practice more, and that I wanted to practice more, came at the wrong time in my life. It just wasn't a convenient time to be doing more practice. But I couldn't not be truthful with myself. It was, it was like this parami came into highlight at the time, and I just couldn't lie to myself. I couldn't pretend that I was happy doing what I was doing, and that I had to do more practice. I had decided that I would go to Asia because I knew so many people around here. I couldn't practice here very well. Every time somebody come, I would have to have a conversation. It was pretty disruptive. So I said I would go to Asia. What that meant was that I had to somehow disengage myself from a very full business and personal and social life, as all of us have. But somehow I had to disengage myself and take myself away from to go to Asia. And even for people who understand meditation, or who practice meditation themselves, when someone in your circle of friends says, you know, this life really isn't satisfactory to me anymore, I'm leaving, in so many gentle words, it's not easy. And it wasn't easy for me to be truthful with the people that I was in relationship with, my family, and my business partners, people that I had contracts with. But somehow, being true to myself and knowing what was really so for me, what was really my truth or my reality in that moment, and what it was to, for me to go into practice, sustained me through what ended up being the ten months of processing, separating from my primary other, closing out my contracts, get, getting rid of my business, and saying goodbye to family and friends. Even though there was a lot of a lot of emotional processing, somehow the clarity with which I knew what it was I needed to do, and didn't deny it to myself. Being true to myself and being completely true with other people. Not explaining, not rationalizing, not really even understanding a lot of what was going on, other than the fact that I needed to go practice. Or I needed to practice and it ended up, ended up having to go away to do it. Something about the mind that is true to itself, that makes it really straight, 
where you can be really fearless. I don't mean fearsome, but really fearless in just expressing the truth, your own truth. Not needing to convince or to persuade or even for other people to believe and not even really to understand what it is you're doing except to know that you're expressing the truth. It's a really powerful quality in the mind. Not easy to come by, actually. Satcha, the second uh, parami, truthfulness. The third parami <clears throat> is aditana. Aditana means resolution or determination or the decisiveness of the mind. I have two experiences of aditana or two ways of talking about aditana that I want to mention. And the first is when I had decided to go to Asia. There was a quality in the mind of knowing that this is what I was going to do. And that no matter what happened, I wasn't going to let anything get in my way. But on the other hand, I wasn't going to ignore those things that did get in the way. There, it's a quality of mind of knowing exactly where you're going, being very decisive, and willing to make whatever efforts required to do it not backing away from anything, no matter how insurmountable or how problematic or how inconvenient it is. It's like not taking no for an answer. Maybe not insisting on yes, but not taking no for an answer. At that time, or about that time, in somewhere at one of the retreats or somewhere at IMS, somebody had put up a sign and I didn't copy it then and I can't really remember at all, except the first few lines went something like this, to paraphrase it. Once someone, man or woman, makes a decision to do something or definitely commits themselves to a particular course of action, then all circumstances, the way they put it, all heaven and earth fall into line behind that decision and support it to make it happen. And that's what decision or aditana feels like in the mind. Once the mind is firmly fixed, decisive on a course of action, everything falls into place to support it, to make it happen. Even the problems that you face, the inconvenience you have to overcome, is somehow supporting your decision for the decisiveness in the mind. That's the understanding the mind has when it's determined, when it's very decided. The second incident, or the second way of understanding this parami, aditana, or decisiveness, is in practice, 
in formal practice, both in formal insight practice and in formal samatha practice, development of tranquility and concentration, there are times when the teachers will ask you to develop certain determination in the mind, a certain level or certain quality of determination. And it's done by taking resolves, or it's done by taking aditanas, where you resolve to do something for a particular sitting, to attain to a certain insight, or to attain to a certain degree of absorption of mind for such a length of time or for a certain number of times. Many different, what for me was seemingly impossible things to even imagine, teachers would ask us to do. After playing around with these resolves and these determinations for a while, I really got to have an understanding and a respect for the quality of mind of decisiveness. It's like I, at the time Buddha Rakita, would say, I resolve to attain XYZ for so long a period of time. And I, Buddha Rakita, would be saying, this is impossible, this can't possibly happen, this is ridiculous. I mean, my mind can't possibly do this. I do the resolve anyway, sit down, won't be what happened. I would be amazed. I'd say, well, how did that happen? And I would go to the teacher and I'd exclaim, what is going on? I, you know, I don't believe that this is possible, but I do the resolve in all serious earnestness. Forget about it, do the practice, and it happens. I began to see that that power of mind, that decisiveness of mind, is not egoness. It's not personality bound. It's a quality of mind that can be cultivated, like mindfulness, like concentration, like metta, like anger, like anything else. Decisiveness of mind. Begin to understand why it's one of the paramis, why it's one of the necessary qualities of mind that needs to be brought to perfection as we walk the path. It's why sometimes in interviews, teachers might suggest to you to, when you sit down, make a strong resolve to be mindful for the hour. This is to develop the power of this quality of aditana, the decisiveness in the mind. It works. If you're sincere in making your resolution, something unbeknownst to you, your personality, will make it happen. Try it. So the third adi, third parami is aditana or resolution, resoluteness of the mind. The fourth is wiriya or effort or energy. Personally, I'm a pretty high metabolism, either blessed or cursed with a pretty high metabolism. It ends up being a lot of restlessness and anxiety when I'm not mindful and a lot of energy for practice when I am. That, coupled with my determination and commitment to practice when I went to Asia, was probably much more than was skillful in my practice. 
when I got to the Medi Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon, they are very strict, to put it mildly. They have a very strict discipline and routine and regimen of behavior and times and schedules of when you should be doing what, and they expect you to do it. And if you're not interested in doing it, they'll just ask you to leave. And I was pretty gung-ho, more than gung-ho, I was overboard. But I didn't know, but all of my previous ten years of practice here had kind of planted these little seeds of, you know, three months is maximum time anybody can do intensive practice. You know, six hours is the minimum amount of sleep that anyone needs during practice. And many other such things, including nobody could possibly survive doing eight precepts. How can you not eat in the evening and still practice? Goodness mercy. These were kind of hidden away, not knowing that they were in my mind. And as I began to get into practice, or as I got into practice, sure enough, these would come up as the major hindrances or the blocks or the ideas that would prevent me from making the effort needed to practice. After three months, I knew well, that's it. I had a real collapse of energy and determination and will to practice. Because I knew that nobody could practice more than three months. Never did in America. How could you hear? But teachers wouldn't let me stop practicing, because as soon as you stop practicing, you have to leave Burma. You can't just hang out. So I had to keep practicing. And it was good. It was good that I did, because after a few days or a week or something, I'd get back into it and have more determination than ever and feel like I had just gotten there and would be into it for a couple of months. And then hot season would come and I'd say, goodness mercy, nobody can practice in this heat. 100 degrees day and night, can't sleep, sweat all the time. Couldn't stand it. Horrible. First year in the tropics, first summer in the tropics is unbearable. So I went through another two-week slump while my brain baked in the sun and then decided once they told me, yeah, this lasts for about three months. If I'm going to be here, I'm going to have to practice with this too, so more effort, more energy. And then rainy season comes. Rains, cats and dogs, night and day. You wash your robes, you hang them up to dry, and after two days they're just as wet as when you wash them. You put them back on and you wear them. Everything turns to mold and mildew. It's horrible. How can you practice in conditions like that? You do. You figure out the way to develop the energy and effort. I remember hours, days, weeks of getting up early in the morning. I did put myself on a little extra. I put myself on a wake-up, get-up schedule. And if it was after an hour of sleeping, I'd get up. If it was after two hours, I'd get up. I don't recommend it for many people. Actually, it's not, not necessary to do that, but it is a good way to... Uh, just see what your limits are. But I remember hours of walking in the early morning, having to really struggle to take each step, hanging onto a wall so I wouldn't fall over. Each step, having to really shake my head, open my eyes, look at a light, take another step. Not so skillful, but 
it certainly does arouse some energy. I ended up practicing that time, the first time there, intensively like you do here, for 17 months. Then I lost my visa and had to leave, went to Malaysia and started again. During the course of that period of time, what I began to notice about energy or effort or wirya is not that you need so much at any particular moment. It's just that you need to be continuous and precise in the application of it. I was more into, I'll work hard for two weeks, take a couple of days off. Work hard for another couple of weeks, take another couple of days off. That's not the way to develop energy or to develop insight. It's rather to work consistently or continuously, precisely. Not making a big splash for a day or two, really trying. That's not it. It's being continuous and steady in the application of the mindfulness. Took a while to learn. Wiriya, fourth parami. The fifth parami is nekama, or renunciation. <clears throat> renunciation. I never really understood what renunciation was. I think my attitude or my kind of naive belief was that it was just giving up things that you liked, restraining yourself from doing what you wanted to do, or doing without. And somehow that I didn't see that that was so... It didn't make me happy, so I wasn't going to do it. <clears throat> but I found that when I went to Asia, there isn't a lot of the Western convenience in Asia. And you don't have much choice. You have to do without. But it was real easy for me then, because I knew what I was there for. I was just there for practice. I wasn't there to accumulate anything, to appear to be anything, to get into any type of relationship with anyone. I wasn't there to acquire anything, or to be anything, or to become anything, but just to practice. And to just practice, you really don't need much. It's real easy to give up things, events, relationships, communication, books, knowledge. When one becomes a monk or a nun, traditionally it's a giving up of that whole way of life and taking up just a set of robes and bowls and the teaching. And for many people to con contemplate it is a terribly difficult thing. How can I possibly do that? How can I get along without, you know, my zafu? Zafu's not being allowed to sit on as a monk because they're too cushy. How can I get along without eating in the afternoon? How can I keep all these rules? How can I, I just, you can't imagine how difficult it is for some people to consider. But it wasn't so difficult for me. In fact, having the opportunity to give up everything it was the happiest day of my life to give up and just walk out of that room and say goodbye. That's it. I don't have to take care of these clothes, this hair, nothing. It's over, finished. In fact, 
when you get your head shaved the first time, what monks traditionally do or what the novice does is the teacher instructs you to contemplate the hair of your head as just one of the 32 parts of the body. Well, I in my mindlessness totally forgot what I was supposed to do as my head was being shaved. But as I was kneeling over and all my hair was collecting on a pile in front of me, I suddenly remembered all of the hassles my parents gave me for my hair. Too long, too short, hassles I gave myself. Not curly, not blonde, not this, not that. And it was just like so many years of hassling and grief and hassle. It just was laying in a pile in front of me. Goodbye. It was so freeing. That's one type of renunciation in Nekoma. Giving up things. I got a deeper understanding of Nekoma renunciation in the middle of practice somewhere when I just understood that there wasn't anyone or anything or any event or any book or any knowledge or any teacher or any relationship or any amount of money or any any meditation experience there was absolutely nothing that I knew could do anything for me. Nothing. Complete detachment from every experience I'd ever known. Not interested in any person, any event, nothing. That there was absolutely nothing in this world that could free the mind. What do you do when you're that renounced? What do you hang on to? Nothing. Not even a good sitting. Not even samadhi. Not even mindfulness. Nothing. In that sense, I really understood that level of renunciation to be freedom freedom from having to do or be or expect or want anything. Not even enlightenment. Because even enlightenment isn't going to do it for you. There's real freedom in that level of renunciation. There was one thing, there was one thing, sorry, that was a little bit difficult to give up. I had good friends in the States, and every time the inquiring mind would come out, they'd send me a copy. One time, I actually was able to put aside the new inquiring mind for six months and only read like one article a week. It was torture. <laughs> Some things I had to give up. So Nekama, the fifth, renunciation is the fifth time. And that's taking three quarters of an hour. Mm -hmm.
the sixth. The sixth parami is sila, or morality. It's, for lay people, it's the five precepts or the eight precepts. <clears throat> I think for most of us in this Christian society or culture, maybe, maybe this is just projection. I know I have a very bad taste in my mouth when I think about morality. Being moral, you know, the moral majority and Puritan ethics or whatever. I just don't have a very good feeling for the understanding of that type of morality. And so, when I got to Burma and was considering and did actually ordain as a monk, they talk about morality or the rules of conduct. And I had a really... I wasn't argumentative. I just knew that if I'm going to ordain, I'm going to have these rules and I'm going to try to keep them. And it's, it's rules for training, not in an ultimate sense of what has to be done to become a spiritual person, but just that it's a training within a tradition. It's not ultimate reality. It's just a relative reality to make life comfortable or to make life mm, harmonious in a spiritual community. Now, as a monk, there are 227 rules. <clears throat> Doesn't sound like too many. In fact, all monks, when they're about, or novices, when they're 12 or 13, learn to recite them quite rapidly. And I read them once. So I had an idea of what they were. There's four rules which, if you contravene them, you automatically are no longer a monk, can never become a monk again for the rest of your life. If you kill a person, if you steal anything, even if you uh, encourage someone to get an abortion, anything like this, is automatically you're no longer a monk. And you can't confess it, you can't do anything to become a monk again. That's it for this lifetime. You've been spoiled, so they say. That's four rules. There are another 13 rules which are considered major offenses also. And they're pretty... They're, they're as heavy as the, the first four, except that they can be confessed. But it's a very lengthy confession. You have to do so many days of penance, so many days of probation, and then be readmitted to the order by 20 monks. And it's a very um, rigorous uh, clearing process you have to go through. Well, I, in my silliness, one time broke one of these rules. And it was a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and embarrassment and just, it was really dukkha. I mean, it was really miserable, and I was really miserable in my mind. I was outside of Burma at the time, I was in another country, and I just didn't know what to do, because it's no easy deal, first of all, to confess it and to, to someone, and then to figure out the procedure that you've got to go through to do it. Everything is very formal in the monastic tradition. So I waited until I got back to Burma, 
and I knew that I had to tell Sayadaw that I'd broken one of these rules and I had to go through this really lengthy, embarrassing, public confession in front of God knows how many hundreds of people. And my name was going to be Mud, and it was just horrible. I really agonized for the time, for the period of time between the breaking of the rule and going to Burma. When I got my visa to go to Burma, when I first got there, some people from the meditation center picked me up, took me to Sayadaw's Kuti. So I went in and we made small talk for a half hour. And he said, well, go to your room and get settled in. Come back and see me later tonight. So when I went back to see him later that night, I knew, you know how it is when you know you've got to break the news to somebody about something really bad, like, you know, I want to get a divorce or you're fired or something. I mean, even worse, if you can imagine. Well, I had to go to Sayadaw and uh, really had to tell him that I'd broken one of these rules, expecting the wrath of the Buddha, if he has any, to come down upon me. <clears throat> so I had a translator. I had to get a translator. You know, you just can't talk Sayadaw. So easy. So I had to get a translator. So I went inside his room and I said, Sayadaw, I have to tell you something. I had broken one of these rules. And he said, well, you'll have to confess it. I said, yeah, I know. And so then he asked me a few formal questions. How long was it before you broke, between the time you broke the rule and told another monk? And I said, oh, I told him the same day. So that eliminated one whole series of penance that I had to do. So he said, well, he says, there's three people in the monastery now that are already doing what you have to do. So you can join them in the morning. So I said, oh, wow, other people break the rules too, great. <laughs> I just, it was just like, no big deal. So I didn't know what was going on. He just said, come to my cootie first, you know, before breakfast. We had to, we had to do something before dawn. So he said, come to my cootie at five o'clock or something. So I went there. And as I was waiting around, I was still nervous as could be. I just thought, I'm such a shameful person. And then these other senior Sayadaws from the center walked into the room and I said, what are you doing here? They said, oh, we're doing our confessions for having broken these fences. <laughs> I was like, what? What are you doing? It's like three of the senior Sayadaws were also doing the same thing I was going to do. And they were quite relaxed and casual about the whole thing. I thought much more. And I got a I got a sense then what the whole practice of morality is all about. It's not to beat yourself. It's not to consider yourself a sinner or some unworthy evil vile person for having broken these rules. It's rather to recognize how certain behavior disturbs the mind. And if you don't do such behavior, you don't disturb the mind. It's not to judge yourself. It's not so other people can judge you. And it's not for you to judge other people. But it's really for your own practice. It's a training rule. It's not a moral commandment from God. 
or something. It's what supports serenity and insight. And somehow, just having gone through that whole, basically what was a Christian reaction to having sinned, into a Buddhist reaction of having disturbed my mind by not keeping the training rules, going from that one transition, through that transition from one understanding to the other, was the most enlightening, one of the most enlightening and painful experiences of my time in Burma. And it's really worth reflecting on what this whole thing about rules is, how we react, how we use, abuse, judge, criticize, condemn ourselves and others with rules. Really insightful to look at that our relationship, our personal relationship to the precepts and otherwise. There's one, two, three, there's another four paramis. Kanti, which is patience, metta, which is loving kindness, panya, which is wisdom, upeka, which is equanimity. There's only five minutes. I think I'll let him go and let it be with these six. I tell you these stories only so you can begin to see that the paramis are what is being developed, it's what's happening in our practice. And if we look back over the time of our practice and our experiences in practice, we can begin to see how these work, how they support practice or how they're developed through practice. And there are practices to develop some of them very specifically. Not necessary, but can be done. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.